0: As you're uh, finding your seat, it's a privilege to uh, be up here with you this morning. Take out your Bible to Isaiah 9, Isaiah chapter 9, as uh, Margaret has read for us. <clears throat> We're going to be looking this morning at a promise that was made by Isaiah. Every few years, our country is uh, inundated by promises, promises of Men and women running for office, and these promises are typically lofty and hope filled. Uh, Typically, these uh, aren't promises just made by a candidate, but candidates running for some form of office also like to uh, throw under the bus other candidates, which we call uh, mudslinging, or for anybody who is below the age of 20, you would call that throw in shade. That's what you do at them, and you not only promise what you'll do, you talk about what the other candidates haven't done or what the other candidates won't do. And these promises are just made over and over. These slogans are put together by candidates, and they're typically made to inspire hope in some kind of dilemma. I found some of my favorite, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, when he was coming out of the, or still in the Great Depression, was running against Herbert Hoover, and he said, happy days are here again. Herbert Hoover, who was running against him, who was president during the Great Depression, that would have been a horrible time to to be president, said, We are turning the corner. Um, I think one of my favorites is Abraham Lincoln said in the middle, before he got assassinated, when he was campaigning to be reelected, he said, Don't change horses midstream. I like that one. But my favorite was William McKinley. He said, four more years of the full dinner pail. That's what I I would have voted right then. Yes, I want dinner to be full. Check the box. Um, We love promises because they give us something to look forward to. When you promise someone something, you automatically give them something to look forward to, most likely. Or when someone promises you, you have something to look forward to. But promises of hope typically aren't inspiring, unless you're in some kind of dilemma. A promise that is made to inspire hope only matters to you if you are in a dilemma, because looking forward to something is often tough uh, when you have nothing to look forward to. When your situation is full of gloom and despair, there has to be something, has to be something that gives you hope. And I would say that in here this morning, no matter where you find yourself, doesn't matter the situation you're in, there is hope. Your child, you think, may be too far gone and is too wayward, but I would say there is hope. Your diagnosis may be grim and it may not look good, but there is hope. Or you maybe in the middle of your marriage don't see it, but hope is actually there. Some of you, you're in a dark place by your very choosing. You have chosen to go away that God would not have you go, and it has led you to places you did not expect. Others of you, you are in a situation or know someone who you deeply love who is in a situation that they did not cause, but it has caused them to be in something that is so tough. And you need to hear this morning that there is hope. And the reason I can say there is hope is not because I'm a preacher and I'm supposed to, No, the reason I can say there is hope is because in the middle of what Isaiah is prophesying here in Isaiah 9, he prophesies words of hope and encouragement for their government and for them personally. The situation Isaiah is speaking into is grim, (coughs) it is dark, and it is hopeless at best, and that's why we're looking at this this morning. In order to gain a full scope of of the hope that we see in this passage, we gotta have a little history lesson. Jerry alluded last week to King Ahaz in his message, and I wanna give you a little more full picture of the depravity of the leader of Judah. His kingdom that Isaiah is prophesying into had this man for a leader. In the book of Kings and Chronicles, it says that King Ahaz does what is not right in the sight of the Lord. Ahaz was Judah's king, and he led his nation to some pretty dark places. It says he reigned for 16 years, and he did what displeased the Lord. He even took his very firstborn son, and offered it to the false god, Moloch, who if you were here last week, you heard about Moloch. He offered his firstborn son to the god, Moloch, as an offering, hoping that Moloch, this false god who was built by human beings, would actually give him a blessing. He aligned himself with one of Judah's worst enemies, Assyria. And he said, hey, will you, because we've been invaded by other people, will you come in because you're a powerful nation and protect us? And because he did that, he took treasures out of the house of the Lord. He took treasures out of the house of God and built altars to the gods of Assyria. He took the treasures out of the house of the Lord and he made his men build altars at every corner of the city. And Second Chronicles says he made Judah act sinfully. And just like a true enemy, just like a true enemy, the king of Assyria, instead of helping him in his time of need, came against him. And even though that happened, Ahaz took from God's house and paid homage to that king, took what was meant to be sacred and meant for God and said, Ahaz, this is for you. And this is the verse that sticks out so clearly about Ahaz. In 2 Chronicles 28, 22, it says, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless. When he needed God most and needed to listen to Isaiah the most, even then he shut it out. It says, King Ahaz closed the doors of the house of God and made altars in every corner, and it provoked the anger of the Lord. Here you have a nation who are God's chosen people, and you have the king leading them toward a pagan nation. And after all of that, chapter 8 of Isaiah, right before the chapter that we're going to be in this morning, chapter 8 of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies that Assyria is going to come in and destroy Judah. Verse 22 of chapter 8, Isaiah says this, And they will look to the earth, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they, Judah, will be thrown into thick darkness. Before I go on this morning, I must say this is exactly what sin does it promises you one thing and brings another. Ahaz aligned himself with his enemy, hoping that it would bring him um, security and hoping that it would bring him a better economy. But instead, Assyria, like sin always will, turned its back on Ahaz and took advantage of him. Like Ahaz, we're meant to follow after God and pursue God above all else. But instead, some of you in here are choosing this morning an entirely different path, which is only going to lead you to darker and darker places. This is exactly what choosing your own way and following sin will do. Romans 1.18 actually says God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness because those who choose unrighteousness suppress, will not listen to God's truth. Just as Ahaz aligned himself with his enemy and it backfired, so aligning yourself with sin will do the same thing. I know you're like, Merry Christmas, Adrian. Thank you for being here today. But I want to give you the hope-filled promise that Isaiah brings. Remember verse 22 that says there will be darkness and there will be anguish. Isaiah immediately, chapter 9. Some scholars say that, that verse 1 of chapter 9 should actually be in chapter 8. But chapter 9, he immediately turns and says, there will be no gloom. I've just prophesied gloom and anguish and despair and distress all the things we don't like. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Why? Verse 1 of chapter 9, because in the latter time, God has made a glorious way that will come from the land of Galilee. A glorious way from the land of Galilee by the sea. And one who is to come, verse 6, tells us it is a child to be born. In the middle Of darkness and gloom brought on by sin and rebellion, there is a promise of a child who is to come, who Isaiah 9 says will be king. So, in the middle of darkness, there is light that breaks through, and that leads us to our first truth this morning. The child king, this child to be born who will be king, this child king breaks through the darkness. This child king breaks through the darkness. If you've ever been afraid of the dark, you know what it's like to see light. I would ask how many of you are afraid of the dark, but I know you wouldn't want to reveal that, and you're afraid that we would put you in a dark place and it would cause you to live out all of your fears. But I will say, as a kid, I was afraid of the dark. I don't know, maybe up until about 32, I'm just kidding, up until about maybe eight, nine, something like that, I was afraid of the dark. As a matter of fact, um, when the lights would go out, my thoughts would only begin. Like, like Some of you are like, Adrian, hey, you probably should have had counseling for that. I probably should have. I, I don't know. But, but when the lights will go out, my thoughts would begin. And, and, and if you're not afraid of the dark, this situation, will, this illustration won't help you any. But if you're afraid of the dark, the only thing that brings comfort and any semblance of peace is light. And there were a couple of times, probably only maybe two that I can remember as a kid, I would uh, go to bed, and there were, again, maybe, maybe two, that I, through the night, would often on sleep, and, and as soon as the sun would come up, it didn't want to cause me to get up and start my day. As soon as the sun would come up and light would begin to come through my window, I would be able to sleep, because at that point, light for me brought Peace. When the sun would come up, I I would be able to fall asleep. The people of Israel, it says, have been walking in darkness for years, and after being taken into exile will be in darkness for centuries. But Isaiah says, those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. He says, a light has shone on them. The people of Judah and Israel have been led astray by ungodly leaders, and they're in desperate need of a new leader. And when people are in need of hope, this child king will break through the middle of the darkness like the sun coming up on a new day. Isaiah, notice, is so certain of his prophecy. He's prophesying in past tense as though it has already happened. And with it, he says, there will be joy like never before. There will be joy. When this child king breaks through the darkness, there will be joy that is not matched by anything else. Think winning the Super Bowl, winning the national championship, winning something that's great. There will be joy that is infinitely greater than that. And that's exactly what Jesus brings, a light in the middle of your darkness. John 8, 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some of you need to know this morning, there is a light in your darkness, and that light is not the end of your circumstances. That light is not a new situation, or that light is not a promise made by another person. That light in your situation, you must look to the light, which is Jesus. No one who trusts Jesus for salvation has to walk in darkness anymore. This light of Jesus invades the darkness, so what does it do? The child king breaks through the darkness, but what else does he do? How does his light break the darkness? It's our second truth. The child king overcomes the power of evil. This is where our ultimate hope comes from. Is, is th- this is where joy in verse 3 comes in. The power of evil will be broken, just like it says, Isaiah says, on the day of Midian. So, what is that day, the day of Midian? And we have to go all the way back to Judges chapter 6, Judges 6 and 7. Midian is oppressing Israel and Midian is a is 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 a large nation oppressing Israel and God calls Gideon this little fella God calls Gideon who is actually hiding out from the Midianites God calls him to lead an army against Midian well Gideon's like you know what God, this ain't for me. You can actually see I'm hiding from them right now. I'm not leading an army. And he says, if you want me to lead an army, then then let me test if this word is really from you. So he does a few tests to see, God, is this really from you that you want me, little Gideon, to lead this army against this great nation, Midian? Does a few tests and finally says, God, I'll do whatever you ask. So Gideon has an army of 32,000 men. And God says, Gideon, I... I have something I need to tell you. That army over there, the Midian army, they're over 100,000 strong. And you have 32,000 men, and that's just too many. So if you're like, if if Gideon is anything like me, you're like, no, God, (laughs) I know you're supposed to be perfect, but I think you're wrong. You know, that's, that's not right. He says, no, no, you have too many men. So here's what I want you to do, Gideon. Here's all I want to ask you to do. I want you to call your army together and have them raise their hand if they're scared. And the ones who are scared, the ones who are fearful and trembling, you can send home. So Gideon just brings everybody. Don't know how he did it with 32,000, but he says, hey, guys, how many of y'all are scared? 22,000 men's hand go up, you know? And he's like, well, I guess you got to go home. So it goes from 32,000 to 10,000, just like that. And and then God says, "Mm, I still think that's too many. Here's what I want you to do now. I want you to go down by the water, and I'm going to give you a little test. If some drink water a certain way, send them home. And if some drink water a certain way, keep them. And that 32,000 that went to 10,000 now goes down to 300. And then Gideon looks across the river, and Judges 6 says that the Midianites were numbered like locusts, and their camels were like sand in the seashore. So 32,000 didn't stand a chance against those guys. 10,000 didn't. Definitely 300 do not. But Gideon says, all right, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to divide 300 men. I'm going to divide you. Some of you will have trumpets. Some of you will have these jars that have torches in them. And they marched on different sides of the Midian camp. And at at the signal, they blew the trumpets. They threw down the jars, and they shouted something like you would hear in Braveheart. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Like, if you're Gideon, you have to feel awesome at that point. You know, these guys are shouting for you, or you're scared that it's not going to work, but here's what happened. Midian, sent into a panic, begins to run. Gideon and his men pursue them, eventually capturing their princes, and then subsequently capturing their kings, then put them to death. And this Midianite army that we find out was 135,000 strong was run away, destroyed by an army of 300. On that day, Midian was destroyed, and it was nothing that Gideon had done. It wasn't Gideon's power. It wasn't the power of those 300 men that was going to destroy 135,000. Only by the power of God, only God can take a small army of 300 and destroy a battle-tested army. Only God can do that. Only God can bring on mighty deliverance. Just as Gideon needed a win over this unbeatable enemy, unless the Lord did it, so evil and sin can only be destroyed if God will do it. But there is one who is to come that we find out, this child king, who can deliver man from their slavery to sin. This child king overcomes the power of evil by destroying evil, just like God destroyed Gideon's enemy, Midian. Sin and corruption, they're like a heavy bar around our neck, laid on us, and it's a grueling task that we are enslaved to sin. But Jesus would come and say, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Only God can destroy the power of evil, and Jesus did so with three nails and a cross. Colossians two thirteen and 15 tells us that Jesus took those who were spiritually dead and made them alive. Those who were spiritually dead made them alive by taking our record of debt, our record of sin, and it was nailed to the cross. And in doing so, what does Colossians 3, 2, 15 tell us? He took away the authority of evil and he triumphed over them. Only God can do that. Only God can take sin and destroy it. Only God can overcome evil. And because he triumphs over the power of evil and because he triumphs over the power of sin, he establishes a new kingdom. And this is our third truth, the best part of the passage, the one we all know from Christmas. The child king will reign perfectly forever. The child king will reign perfectly forever. A perfect kingdom or perfect government is not something we will ever see in our lifetime. Empires and governments deteriorate over time. The greatest government probably ever established was the Roman Empire. It it brought about new reforms that the world had never seen, and only a few nations since have been as good or, or better than the Roman Empire. But what made them the greatest? They lasted right around 500 years. That's an amazing time to last as a nation, as a government. But you know what? Though it lasted 500 years, what does that also mean? It means it it failed. Though it lasted a long time and it was very, very powerful, it also also deteriorated, crumbled, and eventually was destroyed. Look at verse 7 though. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You see, governments deteriorate, but the kingdom established by Jesus only gets better. The kingdom established by Jesus only gets better. What does he promise? Peace, not war. Imagine a world where there is no war forever. Perfectly righteous, not a king who is greedy, not a king who wants more for himself, but instead one who is perfectly righteous for all of eternity a king who is completely just, no oppression, only until eternity begins. Revelation 21.5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This is what Jesus will ultimately do. The responsibility of the world will lay on his shoulders and he will handle it perfectly. How will Jesus do this? How will he handle this perfectly? We have to look at his four names. Isaiah described him with four names. He says he will do this because he is a wonderful counselor. This is a counselor who only gives perfect instruction. Jesus holds all wisdom. He has no need for an advisory council. Jesus doesn't call up someone and say, hey, I need help on this one. No, his words bring healing, his words bring comfort, and he alone brings salvation. Jesus is their wonderful counselor. It says that he is the mighty God. This must bring you comfort this morning. Mighty God means he is unable to be defeated. Jesus is a king who cannot or will not be defeated. Matter of fact, the word mighty is linked to the word hero here. Isaiah is calling Jesus a hero God, one who only wins battles. John 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. What about everlasting father? This is a father who lives forever, a perfect father who treats his kids with, with perfection, who treats them tenderly and treats them with grace and truth. And then my absolute favorite, it says, Prince of Peace. This is a ruler who removes all instability. Jesus brings the end of instability, right? In in the middle of impending war, there will be a Prince of Peace. Peace doesn't come just because war ends. Peace comes because of the removal of what causes war, which is sin, Jesus brings the end of instability. Imagine with me for a moment a world where instability has no place in relationships. Imagine with me for a moment where instability has no place in your family, in your workplace, where the instability brought on by anxiety is completely gone, where you don't worry about the diagnosis you may get because instability is gone. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, so don't you think if this child king can handle the responsibility laid on him by the world, he can handle whatever it is you take to him now? Notice, though, the hope for Israel's grim situation didn't come with an end right then. It would have been amazing for, for Judah at Isaiah 9-7 if all bad things had ended. But guess what? In the middle of what Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus, who's still king? Ahaz? Assyria still came in and took over, and they would eventually go into exile. The hope came not in the end of the situation that they were in. The hope came in knowing that that wasn't the end. Hope for the people of Judah and hope for us comes knowing that our situation will not last forever. It may even last for a lifetime, but it will not rule over you forever because Jesus is the supreme king of the universe who is the prince of peace who will one day make you and me like what Revelation 21 1 through 4 says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more this is John writing what one day Jesus will bring to those who are followers of Christ and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and they pass away because the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Wonderful Counselor is sitting supreme on His throne. And I would say this morning, some of you, I know that you are battling because I know several of your situations, and I know that right now, in the middle of what it is that you are battling, you need to remember. That though it may not come to an end, what you're worried about, what you're facing, it may not come to an end today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. It may not. But what you do is you keep pressing into the light, Jesus, who breaks through the darkness, the light who will one day ultimately overcome the power of evil. And you keep pressing in and leaning into Jesus, whose words bring comfort, whose words bring healing, and who can handle whatever it is you throw at him. You keep pressing into the light that breaks through the darkness. So here's what I want to ask of you this morning. I want to ask each of you just to close your eyes and bow your head for a moment. All of these, all of these words, all of these descriptions of Jesus are true. But what I want to ask you this morning is what is it you need to take to him? What is it that, you need to, that he needs to be for you this morning? Is it Wonderful Counselor? Is it the hero, the mighty God who is unable to be defeated? Do you need him to be the everlasting father for you this morning or do you need him to be this morning the situation you're going through? God, I need you to bring peace in the middle of my instability. Lord we come before you right now all over this room people are praying to you and we know because you are powerful, perfect and holy you are able to hear all of our prayers you are able to to listen to the words that people in this room are speaking to right now Lord we live in a world full of empty promises we live in a world full of Instability. But Jesus, we know that you are the rock. You are the one that stands when storms hit, and God, because of that, I ask that people all over this room would, would stand with you holding them in whatever situation that they're in this morning. Jesus, may your words bring comfort and healing as you have been promised from hundreds of years before your birth that you would bring these things. And Jesus, you have brought these things, and ultimately you have destroyed the power of death through the cross and through your resurrection. May we be encouraged and have comfort and hope knowing that you are the mighty God who is unable to be defeated, and though we are going to see wins and losses in our lives, there will be a day when you have destroyed all evil, when you have taken away all pain, when you have dealt with all sin. And Jesus, we look forward to that day. Thank you for being our everlasting Father. And thank you for being the Prince of Peace that takes away Ultimately, one day, instability, but even now, in the middle of of a chaotic situation, you can give us peace. Thank you for that. God, apply this text as you see fit to the lives of the people in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.